we would now like to welcome our second reader for the evening, who's an old friend of me personally and also of SF and SF. He's the, our first repeat, and he's a writer who bears repeating. He's, I've been a fan of this guy for some longer than we'd like to admit, uh, but he's, I would call it, he's at what James Brown was to soul, this guy is to cyberpunk. He's the one of the old originals of, um, of sort of, some would say modernizing, some would say uh, shaking up, some would say dealing the death blow to science fiction, the cyberpunk <laughs> movement. At any rate, he's also he's a scientist, a mathematician, as well as a writer, and uh, he has a a um, formidable list of books and uh, uh, for uh, both fiction and nonfiction. And uh, but I'll leave it at that, and you'll get a chance to talk to him later on. Let me introduce my friend, colleague, and uh, one of our major writers, Rudy Rucker. Thanks, Terry. It's, uh, I really appreciate your organizing this. Uh, <clears throat> San Francisco science fiction has gotten much livelier since Terry came out here. <laughs> I actually read for Terry uh, once or maybe twice in, in New York at the KGB, and uh, it's, it's cool to have it happening here. Uh, that was a, a kick-ass chapter you read, Corey. I mean, it's nice to... I'm going to get some pictures of you all from my blog, so it looked like you're having fun. <laughs> Repeat after me, a boner that could cut glass. <laughs> you got the other side. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, baby. Okay. Um, yeah, I think that's nice to be perverting the young folk like that. And it's all, I also like the young adult thing where, you, like you describe a kiss, like that's... That's unusual, you know. That's that's cool. I think that the book's going to do really well. What was the title of it again? Little brother. Little brother. Perfect. Instead of. Yeah. Okay. The story I'm going to read tonight is about Alan Turing, and most of you know that Alan Turing was an early theoretician. He invented the idea of the Turing machine. He helped build one of the first digital computers uh, during the war. He was a code breaker. Uh, he got in trouble for being gay, uh, and maybe a little less known is he was working on morphogenesis, which is uh, a way of trying to emulate how uh, embryos form their shapes, and that was the work he was doing on when he died. Now his death is uh, listed as a suicide from cyanide poisoning, but in this story we'll find out the real truth. The Imitation Game It was a rainy Sunday night, June 6, 1954. Alan Turing was walking down the liquidly lamp-lit street to the Manchester train station wearing a long raincoat with a furled umbrella concealed beneath. His Greek paramour, Zeno, was due on the 9 p.m. coach, having taken a ferry from Calais. And no, the name had no philosophical import. It was simply the boy's name. If all went well, Zeno and Alan would be spending the night together in the sepulchral Manchester Midland Travelers Hotel. Alan's own home nearby was watched. He'd booked the hotel room under a pseudonym. Barring any intrusions from the moral squad, 
Alan and Zeno would set off bright and early tomorrow for a lovely week of tramping across the hills of the lake country, free as rabbits, sleeping in serendipitous huts. Alan sent up a fervent prayer, if not to God, then to the deterministic universe's initial boundary condition. <laughs> Let it be so. Surely the cosmos bore no distinct animus towards homosexuals, and the world might yet grant some peace to the tormented, fretful, gnat-labeled Alan Turing. But it was by no means a given that the assignation with Zeno would click. Last spring, the suspicious authorities had deported Alan's Norwegian flame, Kjell, straight back to Bergen before Alan even saw him. That actually happened. It was as if Alan's persecutors supposed him likely to be teaching his men top-secret code-breaking algorithms rather than sensually savoring his rare hours of private joy. Although, yes, Alan did relish playing the tutor, and it was in fact conceivable that he might feel the urge to discuss those topics upon which he'd worked during the war years. After all, it was no one but he, Alan Turing, who'd been the brains of the British cryptography team at Bletchley Park, cracking the Nazi Enigma code and shortening the war by several years. Little thanks that he'd ever gotten for that. The churning of a human mind is unpredictable, as is the anatomy of the human heart. Alan's work on universal machines and computational morphogenesis had convinced him that the world is both deterministic and overflowing with endless surprise. His proof of the unsolvability of the halting problem had established, at least to Alan's satisfaction, that there could never be any shortcuts for predicting the figures of nature's stately dance. Few but Alan had as yet grasped the new order. The prating philosophers still supposed, for instance, that there must be some element of randomness of play in order that each human face be slightly different. Far from it. The differences were simply the computation-amplified results of disparities among the embryos and their wombs, with these disparities stemming in turn from the cosmic computation's orderly exfoliation of the universe's initial conditions. Of late, Alan had been testing his ideas with experiments involving the massed cellular computations by which a living organism transforms egg to embryo to adult. Input acorn, output oak. He'd already published his results involving the dappling of a brindle cow, but his latest experiments were so close to magic that he was holding them secret, wanting to refine the work in the all-chemical privacy of his starkly underfurnished home. Should all go well, a Nobel Prize might grace the burgeoning field of computational morphogenesis. This time, Alan didn't want a droning gas bag like Alonzo Church to steal his thunder, as had happened with the Hilbert Entscheidungsproblem. <laughs> Mathematical humor. <laughs> Alan glanced at his watch. Only three minutes till the coach arrived. His heart was pounding. Soon he'd be committing lewd and lascivious acts, luscious phrases, with a man in England. To avoid a stint in jail, he'd sworn to abjure this practice, but he'd found wiggle room for his conscience. Given that Zeno was a visiting Greek national, 
he wasn't strictly speaking a man in England, <laughs> as, assuming that in was construed to mean who is a member citizen of. <laughs> Chop the logic and let the tree of the knowledge of good and evil fall soundless in the moldering woods. <laughs> It had been nearly a year since Alan had enjoyed manly love. Last summer on the island of Corfu with none other than Zeno, who'd taken Alan for a memorable row in his dory. <laughs> Alan had just been coming off his court-ordered estrogen treatments, and thanks to the lingering effects of the libido-reducing hormones, the sex had been less intense than one might wish. The coming week would be different. Alan felt as randy as a hat rack. His whole being was on the surface of his skin. Approaching the train station, he glanced back over his shoulder, reluctantly playing the socially assigned role of furtive perv, and sure enough, a weedy, way-faced fellow was mooching along half a block behind, a man with a little round mouth like a lamprey eels. Officer Harold Jenkins. Devil take the beastly prig. Ellen twitched his eyes forward again, pretending not to have seen the detective. What with the growing transatlantic hysteria over homosexuals and atomic secrets, the security minders grew ever more officious. In these darkening times, Ellen sometimes amused that the United States had been colonized by the lowest dregs of British society. Sexually obsessed zealots, degenerate criminals, and murderous slave masters. On the elevated tracks, Zeno's train was pulling in. What to do? Surely Detective Jenkins didn't realize that Alan was meeting this particular train. Alan's incoming mail was vetted by the censors. He estimated that by now Her Majesty was employing the equivalent of 2.7 workers full-time to torment that disgraced boffin, Professor A.M. Turing. But, score one for Prof. Turing, his written communications with Zeno had been encrypted via a sheaf of one-time pads he left in Corfu with his golden-eyed Greek god, bringing a matching sheaf home. Alan had made the pads from clipped-out sections of identical newspapers. He'd also built Zeno a cardboard cipher wheel to simplify the lookups. <laughs> No, no. In all likelihood, Jenkins was in this loose district on a routine patrol, although now, having spotted Turing, he would, of course, dog his steps. The arches beneath the elevated tracks were the precise spot where, two years ago, Alan had connected with a sweet-faced boy whose dishonesty had led to Alan's conviction for acts of gross indecency. Alan's arrest had been, to some extent, his own doing. He'd been foolish enough to call the police when one of the boy's friends burglarized his house. Silly ass, Alan's big brother had said. Remembering the phrase made Alan wince and snicker. A silly ass in a dunce's cap with donkey ears. A suffering human being, nonetheless. The train screeched to a stop, puffing out steam. The doors of the carriages slammed open. Alan would have loved to sashay up there like Snow White on the palace steps, but how to shed Jenkins? Not to worry, he'd prepared a plan. He darted into the men's public lavatory, inwardly chuckling at the vile, voyeuristic thrill that disc-mouthed Jenkins must feel to see his quarry going to earth.
The echoing stony chamber was redolent with the rich scent of putrefying urine, the airborne biochemical signature of an immortal colony of microorganisms indigenous to the standing waters of the train station pissoir. It put Alan in mind of his latest Petri dish experiments at home. He learned to grow stripes, spots, and spirals in the flat mediums, and then he'd moved into the third dimension. He'd, drawn he'd grown tentacles, hairs, and just yesterday, a congelation of tissue very like a human ear. Like a thieves' treasure cave, the wonderful bathroom ran straight through to the other side of the elevated track with an exit on the far side. Striding through the room's length, Alan drew out his umbrella, folded his Macintosh into a small bundle tucked beneath one arm, and hiked up the overlong pants of his dark suit to display the prominent red tartan spats that he'd worn, the spats a joking gift from a Cambridge friend. Exiting the jakes on the other side of the tracks, Alan opened his high-domed umbrella and pulled it low over his head. With the spats and the dark suit replacing the beige mac and ground-dragging cuffs, he looked quite the different man from before. Not risking a backward glance, he clattered up the stairs to the platform, and there was Zeno, his handsome, bearded face alight. Zeno was tall for a Greek, with much the same build as Alan's. As planned, Alan paused briefly by Zeno, as if asking a question, privily passing him a little map and a key to the room at the Midland Hotel. And then Alan was off down the street, singing in the rain, leading the way. Alan didn't notice Detective Jenkins following him in an unmarked car. Once Jenkins had determined where Alan and Zena were bound, he put in a call to the security office at MI5. The matter was out of his hands now. The sex was even more enjoyable than Alan had hoped. He and Zeno slept till mid-morning, Zeno's leg heavy across his, the two of them spooned together in one of the room's twin beds. Alan awoke to a knocking on the door, followed by a rattling of keys. He sprang across the carpet and leaned against the door. We're still asleep, he said, striving for an authoritative tone. The dining room's about to close, whined a woman's voice. Might I bring the gentlemen their breakfast in the room? Indeed, said Alan through the door, a British breakfast for two. We have a train to catch rather soon. Earlier this week, he'd had his housekeeper send his bag ahead to Cumbria in the Lake District. Very good, sir. Full breakfast for two. Wash, said Zeno, sticking his head out of the bathroom. At the sound of the maid, he darted right in there and started the tub. He looked happy. Hot water! Alan joined Zeno in the bath for a minute, and the dear boy brought him off right off. But then Alan grew anxious about the return of the maid. He donned his clothes and rucked up the second bed so it would look slept in. Now Zeno emerged from his bath, utterly lovely in his nudity. Anxious Alan shooed him into his clothes. Finally the maid appeared with the platters of food, really quite a nice-looking breakfast with kippers, sausages, fried eggs, toast, honey, marmalade cream, and a lovely great pot of tea, steaming hot. Seeing the maid face to face, Alan realized they knew each other. She was the cousin of his housekeeper. Although the bent little woman feigned not to recognize him, he could see in her eyes that she knew exactly what he and Zeno were doing here. And there was a sense that she knew something more. 
She gave him a particularly odd look when she poured out the two mugs of tea. Wanting to be shot of her, Alan handed her a coin, and she withdrew. Milk tea, said Zeno, tipping half his mug back into the pot and topping it up with cream. He raised the mug as if in a toast, then slurped most of it down. Alan's tea was still too hot for his lips, so he simply waved his mug and smiled. It seemed that even with the cream, Zeno's tea was very hot indeed. Setting his mug down with a clatter, he began fanning his hands at his mouth, theatrically gasping for breath. Alan took it for a joke and let out one of his grating laughs, but this was no farce. Zeno squeaked and clutched at his throat. Beads of sweat covered his face, foam coated his lips. He dropped to the floor in a heap, spasmed his limbs like a starfish, and beat a tattoo on the floor. Hardly knowing what to think, Alan knelt over his inert friend, massaging his chest. The man had stopped breathing. He had no pulse. Alan made, his, made as if to press his mouth to Zeno's, hoping to resuscitate him. But then he smelled bitter almonds, the classic sign of cyanide poisoning. Recoiling as abruptly as a piece of spring-loaded machinery, Alan ran into the bathroom and rinsed out his mouth. His, Her Majesty's spymasters had gone mad. They'd meant to murder them both. In the Queen's eyes, Alan was an even greater risk than a rogue atomic scientist. Alan's cryptographic work on breaking the Enigma Code was a secret secret. The very existence of his work was unknown to the public at large. His only hope was to slip out of the country and take on a new life. But how? He thought distractedly of the ear-shaped form he'd grown in the Petri dish at home. Why not a new face? Alan leaned over Zeno, rubbing his poor dear chest. The man was very dead. Alan went and listed by, listened by the room's door. Were MI5 agents lurking without, showing their teeth like hideous omnivorous ghouls? But he heard not a sound. The likeliest possibility was that some low-ranking operative had paid the maid to let him dose the tea and had then gotten well out of the way. Perhaps Alan had a little time. He imagined setting his internal computational system to double speed. Stepping lively, he exchanged clothes with Zeno, a bit tricky as the other man's body was so limp. Better than rigor mortis, at any rate. Finding a pair of scissors in Zeno's travel kit, Alan trimmed off the pathetic noble beard, sticking the whiskers to his own chin with smears of honey. A crude initial imitation, a first-order effect. Alan packed Zeno's bag and made an effort, effort to lift the corpse to his feet. Good Lord, but this was hard. Alan thought to tie a necktie to the suitcase, run the tie over his shoulder, and knot it around Zeno's right arm. If Alan held the suitcase in his left hand, it made a useful counterweight. It was a good thing that, having survived the estrogen treatments, Alan had begun training again. He was very nearly as fit as in his early 30s. Suitcase in place, right arm tightly wrapped around Zeno's midriff and grasping the man's belt, Alan waltzed his friend down the hotel's back stairs, emerging into a car park where, thank you, great algorithmist, a cabbie was having a smoke. <laughs> My friend Turing is sick, said Alan, mustering an imitation of a Greek accent. I want to take him home. Blind, pissed of a Monday morn, cackled the cabbie jumping to his own conclusions. That's the high life for fair. And red spats. 
What's our Toff's address? With a supreme effort, Alan swung Zeno into the cab's rear seat and sat next to him. Alan reached into the body's coat and pretended to read off his home address. Nobody seemed to be tailing the cab. The spooks were lying low, lest blame for the murder fall upon them. As soon as the cab drew up to Alan's house, he overpaid the driver and dragged Zeno to his feet, waving off all offers of assistance. He didn't want the cabbie to get a close look at the crude, honey-sticky beard on his chin. And then he was in his house, which was blessedly empty, Monday being the housekeeper's day off. Moving from window to window, Alan drew the curtains. He dressed Zeno in touring pajamas, laid him out in the professorial bed, and vigorously washed the corpse's face, not forgetting to wash his own hands afterwards. Seeking out an apple from the kitchen, he took two bites, then dipped the rest of the apple into a solution of potassium cyanide that he happened to have about the place in a jam jar. <laughs> that's, uh, that's actually true. That's the kind of house Turing had. <laughs> He'd always loved the scene in Snow White and the Seven Dwarves when the wicked witch, when wicked witch lowers an apple into a cauldron of poison. Dip the apple in the brew. Let the sleeping death seep through. Alan set the poison apple down beside Zeno. A Snow White suicide. Now to perfect the imitation game. He labored all afternoon. He found a pair of cookie sheets in the kitchen. The housekeeper often did baking for him. He poured a quarter inch of his specially treated gelatin solution onto each sheet. As it happened, the gelatin was from the bones of a pig, man's best friend. He set the oven on its lowest heat and slid in the cookie sheets, leaving the oven door open so he could watch. Slowly the medium gelled. Alan's customized jelly contained a sagacious mixture of activator and inhibitor compounds. It was tailored to promote just the right kind of embryological reaction diffusion computation. Carefully wielding a scalpel, Alan cut a tiny fleck of skin from the tip of Zeno's cold nose. He set the fleck into the middle of the upper cookie sheet, then looked in the mirror, preparing to repeat the process on himself. Oh, blast, he still had honey and hair on his chin. Silly ass. Carefully he swabbed off the mess with toilet paper, flushing the evidence down the commode, and then he took the scalpel to his own nose. After he set his fleck of tissue into place on the lower pan, his tiny cut would keep on bleeding, and he had to spend nearly half an hour staunching the spot, greatly worried that he might scatter drops of blood around. Mentally he was running double strength error checking routines to keep himself from mucking things up. It was so very hard to be tidy. When the housekeeper arrived tomorrow morning, Alan's digs should look chaste, sarcophagal, Egyptian. The imitation Turing corpse would be a mournful memento mori of a solitary life gone wrong, and the puzzled poisoners would hesitate to intervene. The man who knew too much would be dead. That was the primary desideratoma. After a perfunctory inquest, the Turing replica would be cremated, bringing the persecution to a halt, and Alan's mother might forever believe that her son's death was an accident. For years she'd been chiding him over his messy fecklessness with the chemicals in his home lab. Outside a car drove past very slowly. The brutes were wondering what was going on. Yet they hesitated to burst in, lest the neighbors learn of their perfidy. 
With shaking hands, Alan poured himself a glass of sherry. Steady, old man. See this through. He pulled up a kitchen chair and sat down to stare through the open oven door. Like puffing pastry, the flecks of skin were rising up from the cookie sheets with discs of cellular growth radiating out as the tissues grew. Slowly the noses hove into view, and then the lips, the eye holes, the forehead, the chins. As the afternoon light waned, Alan saw the faces age. Zeno in the top pan, Alan on the bottom. They began as innocent babes, became pert boys, spotty youths, and finally grown men. Ah, uh, the pathos of biology's irreversible computations, thought Alan, forcing a wry smile. But the orotund verbiage of academe did little to block the pain. Dear Zeno was dead. Alan's life as he'd known it was at an end. He wept. It was dark outside now. Alan drew the pans from the oven, shuddering at the enormity of what he'd wrought. The uncanny, empty-eyed faces had an expectant air. They were like holiday pie crusts waiting for steak and kidney, for mincemeat and plums. Bristles had pushed out of the two flaccid chins, forming little beards. Time to slow down the computation. One didn't want the wrinkles of extreme old age. Alan doused the living faces with inhibitor solution, damping their cellular computations to a normal rate. He carried the bearded, Turing face into his bedroom and pressed it onto the corpse. The tissues took hold, sinking in a bit, which was good. Using his fingers, Alan smoothed the joins at the edges of the eyes and lips. As the living face absorbed cyanide from the dead man's tissues, its color began to fade. A few minutes later, the face was waxen and dead. The illusion was nearly complete. Alan momentarily lost his composure and gagged. He ran to the toilet and vomited. The little came up. He'd neglected to eat anything today other than those two bites of apple. Finally, his stomach spasm stopped. In full error correction mode, he remembered to wash his hands several times before wiping his face, and then he drank a quart of water from the tap. He took his razor and shaved the still-bearded, dead Turing face in his bed. The barbering went faster than when he'd shaved Zeno in the hotel. It was better to stand so that he saw the face upside down. Was barbering a good career? Surely he'd never work as a scientist again. Given any fresh input, the halted Turing persecution would resume. Alan cleaned up once more and drifted back into the kitchen. Time to skulk out through the dark garden with Zeno's passport, bicycle through the familiar woods to a station down the line, and catch a train. Probably the secret police wouldn't be much interested in pursuing Zeno. They'd be glad Zeno had posed their murder as a suicide, and the less questions asked, the better. But to be safe, Turing would flee along an unexpected route. He'd take the train to Plymouth, the ferry from there to Saint-Ander on the north coast of Spain, a train south through Spain to the Mediterranean port of Tarifa, and another ferry from Tarifa to Tangiers. Tangiers was an open city an international zone. He could buy a fresh passport there. He'd be free to live as he liked in a small way. Perhaps he'd master the violin and read the Iliad in Greek. Alan glanced down at the flaccid Zeno face, imagining himself as a Greek musician. If you were me from A to Z, 
if I were you, from Z to A. Alan caught himself. His mind was spinning in loops, avoiding what had to be done next. It was time. He scrubbed his features raw and donned his new face.